This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We got a new top 100. We got pitchers and catchers reporting in like two weeks. We are so close to real baseball, which I say to start off every edition of the show before the show podcast uh, from MILP.com. Really after we pass New Year's, then I'm just like, just keep reminding people it's going to be baseball season soon. <laughs> Don't worry. I promise. No, now, now it's it, by the time people are listening to this, it's going to be February. Yeah. So, you know, I it's guess happy. this comes out on Groundhog Day, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. So, so this, uh, you have to listen to this podcast yeah. Yeah, on repeat, like forever, <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm familiar with the customs of Groundhog Day. I guess we have so. to make it good then if it's just going to be playing on loop. True. It's got to be a good one. We gotta. We have to aim high with this one. The 95th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. I am Tyler Mon. He is Sam Dykstra. Got a good one for you today. Justice Sheffield, New York Yankees pitching prospect and the brand new number 79 prospect in all of minor league baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. He will join the show here coming up in just a little bit. The left-hander acquired from the Cleveland Indians at the trade deadline last year in the Andrew Miller deal. Justin Justice Sheffield is a fun guy to watch. He's a fun guy to talk to. Uh, Sam and I talked after the interview that we'd each had a chance to talk to him independently before. But getting a chance to talk to a guy out of season that you've talked to in season is always really cool because you kind of get a glimpse into the mind behind a guy when you're talk to him and talking to him out of a competitive sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, and how much he fights with his brother. Yeah, exactly. And we'll hear about that, too. Other ways the competitive sense manifests itself. (laughs) So, Justin Sheffield coming up here in just a little bit. And before we get to that, and before we get to three strikes for this week's edition of the show before the show, as always, your friendly reminder that you can find us at MILB.com slash podcast. You can find us on iTunes and the Stitcher app. We've got links to the RSS feed and all that kind of stuff uh, on MILB.com slash podcast as well. And give us a rating and a review and a subscription. I haven't checked that in a couple of weeks. It's probably, you know, uh, just a billion five-star reviews, man. That's what I'm imagining. It's a million and a half. Yeah. It's a a million and a half. Could be two million. What generally happens is we just rocket into the seven and eight figures. Yeah. Of, uh, of reviews on iTunes. We're the most reviewed podcast ever. Um, but no, you should go do that and, uh, and join the crowd and get in touch with us. Podcast at MILB.com. And Sam and I are both on Twitter. Sam's at Sam Dykstra, MILB, and I am at Tyler Mond. So without further ado, the top 100 prospects have arrived for the 2017 season from our good pals at MLB Pipeline. And they are headlined by this top five Andrew Benintendi is your brand new top prospect in all of baseball. The Boston Red Sox outfield prospect who will graduate from this list 
in pretty short order because he's not going to spend much, if any, time in the minor leagues in 2017. Andrew Benintendi last year, 97 games in the minors, 312, 378, 532 his slash line. Then he jumped to the big leagues for 34 games, 295, 359, 476 his slash line there. The Arkansas product, who is a stud in the outfield, is the top prospect in the sport. Yoan Mankata, his former organization teammate with the Red Sox, now with the Chicago White Sox, the second baseman who last year spent his time split between Class A Advanced Salem and Double A Portland in the Boston Red Sox system. He is number two. Glaber Torres, the shortstop prospect, and another trade acquisition in the New York Yankees organization, formerly of the Chicago Cubs. He checks in at number three. Another shortstop follows him. That's Dansby Swanson, yet another trade acquisition of the Atlanta Braves, who likewise made his Major League debut in 2016, as did Andrew Benintendi. And yet another shortstop and yet another friend of the podcast, Ahmed Rosario of the New York Mets, is number five. Sam, your thoughts on the top 100 top prospect. You can make a case for any of those guys, I think, to be number one. Yeah, you really could. Um, you know, that's why we're kind of highlighting the, the top five just to round out the top 10. So, I mean, we could keep going, but just to round out the top 10 so people know what the next kind of tier is. Number six is Alex Reyes uh, in the Cardinals organization. Number seven is Philly shortstop J.P. Crawford. Number eight, Victor Robles in the Nationals organization. Number nine, Tyler Glass now, who we'll get to later in this segment. And number 10 is Austin Meadows, also of the Pirates. Um, so, yeah, but I think it, that top five is really the core group that you could kind of make a case for any of them uh, to be the top overall pick. Uh, ben Attendi is, is such a good choice just because we've already seen him do it at the major league level. Um, he, he has a chance to kind of be a five-toolish player, maybe four-and-a-half tool. His arm isn't, the, you know, Vladimir Guerrero, like we'll say, but uh, he certainly can play a capable center field won't be asked to do that for the Red Sox because they have a very capable center fielder in Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, so he'll start the year as the opening day left fielder, uh, barring some unforeseen in injury. But uh, Benintendi could end up winning a batting title someday. His hit tool is that good. Has some pop, a surprising amount of pop uh, for a guy who's listed at 5'10", 170. That's a generous 5'10". Uh, I've stood next to him. Anybody who stood next to him will probably tell you he's like 5'8". Uh, but he he can certainly put some some pop into the ball. Um, he just ticks so many boxes that he's an easy pick for number one. Uh, when you add in the production side, not just the tool side, but the production side, that's what kind of gives him that spot. I think Mankata's a little bit of a toolsier player in that his ceiling is higher than Benintendi. He could be kind of your all-world player no matter where he goes, whether he sticks at second base, whether he moves to third, or if he even gets time in, the, in center field, which he hasn't done yet at the minor league level. Uh, but he's incredibly fast, uh, you know, plus-plus run tool, uh, very good hitter as a switch hitter, has a little bit more power, I think, than Benintendi does, uh, has a very solid arm, could play at third, could play at second, could play in, in the outfield if he ever gets that chance. Uh, his speed gives him some range wherever he's going to go. Uh he obviously struggled at the major league level. I think that's what puts him beneath Benintendi right now. Uh, specifically, he struggles with strikeouts. He struck, struck out 12 times in 19 at-bats with the Red Sox uh, before moving to the White Sox in the Chris Sale trade. Uh, they're not going to aggressively push him. He'll probably start at AAA Charlotte, uh, which should be a lot of fun. Charlotte's a very hitter-friendly environment uh, for the AAA level, so we'll see, have to see how he does there uh, at number two. And then Torres, Swanson, and Rosario – Three, four, five, as you mentioned, all shortstops. All bring a little bit of their own game to this. I think 
Um, you know, Torres might be the best hitter of the bunch when all is said and done. Uh, he he might end up. He's also the least likely, I think, of the three to stay at shortstop. Uh, but he has a solid arm, uh, some good pop for that position, a really good hit tool. We saw that in the Arizona Fall League when he was the AFL MVP at turning 403 in 18 games for Scottsdale. Uh, Swanson just dependable and everywhere he's everything he's going to do uh, for the Braves is probably going to be you know their cornerstone player for years to come. Uh, very good hit tool, good runner, good fielder, good arm, that whole thing. The only thing he's lacking is the power, but that's not something you're gonna ask from a shortstop. Uh, like Ben Intendi, he has produced at the major league level, 302 average in 129 at bats last year. Uh, that's what pushes him into the top five. And then Ahmed Rosario, the best fielder I think of anybody in this in this group, probably in the top 10. Uh, just a premium defender at shortstop. Showed last year that he can hit, you know, with a 324 average. Uh, is a speedy guy. Stole 19 bases. I think he can do even more than that eventually. I think he might have the higher ceiling of this group of shortstop. That's my personal opinion. I think, you know, Torres might be a better hitter. I think Rosario will have kind of the better package uh, kind of in that Lindor set. You know, the the player Francisco Lindor has turned into just a really good elite defensive shortstop with a good hit tool. I think that's where Rosario is going. I, I can't say that he's going to be as good as Lindor, but he's going to be approaching that. And he would be, kind of be my pick of this group. Um, but if you're looking at this top five, you know, I don't think you go wrong if you kind of move any of these guys around. Uh, just give them the tools and the production that all of these guys have shown in the minor leagues. I agree. What am I going to add to that? What am I going to add to good Sam Dykstra analysis? See, that's like the it. thing. We don't have to turn this into a debate. You no. Know, we can kind of just make it a discussion. I mean, if you want to. Embrace wanna... calm and intelligent discourse, Sam. <laughs> that's what we like. That's, That's fine. Really One thing that uh, that we noted um, before we started the show today, Lucas Giolito's fallen a little bit. Uh, the former Washington Nationals top prospect, the former top pitching prospect in baseball, is back at number 12 now. Um, and another thing that stands out a little bit is that among pitchers, there are only three pitchers in the top 15 prospects in baseball. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's kind of an interesting numbers game, but you mentioned Reyes uh, at at five at six rather and Tyler Glass now at nine Gilito slotted in there at 12 um the Mankata acquisition obviously was massive for the White Sox the Giolito thing people seem to have fallen that star has fallen a little bit I don't think people are off of his bandwagon entirely but it's certainly not what the the focus was around him going into 2015 or 2016 as of right now yeah I mean that's kind of what happens when you know you're most going to get seen, you know, at the major league level, you know, that's where every, it's so much easier to get highlights. It's so much easier to, to watch these guys. Uh, it's easier for everybody to see that across the country. And for him, you know, he really struggled at the major league level. And you hear these stories, you know, our reports, other people's reporting, whatever people we've talked to, you know, he's throwing mid nineties, touching high nineties at times in the minors. And then he comes up to the majors and he's struggling to get into the low nineties. Um, and you know, when that doesn't show up at the major league level, you're going to get bashed around a bit and throw in that he really struggled with control. You know, that's when you're going to see somebody's stock slip. Uh, you know, the whole point of development is to put it together at the major league level. And when it doesn't happen, for somebody even as talented as Giolito with all, you know, the package of pitches that he has, um, you know, that's what's going to kind of get him to go down a little bit. Mind you, you know, he's still 
only 22. He's turning 23 in July. So that's why he's still a top 15 prospect here. Uh, you know, he's headed to a new system. They're going to not rush him at all. You know, the Nationals were looking for arms as they were competing in the NL East. The White Sox are not going to, you know, they're a rebuilding team right now. They're only going to bring him up when he's ready. So, you know, he has every chance to rebuild his stock in 2017. Uh, but that's what causes a guy as talented as him to kind of slip for now. Some other interesting notes and numbers. The New York Yankees lead the way with seven prospects ranked in the top 100. Uh, that's the most of any organization. The White Sox uh, are behind them with six. The Atlanta Braves on the National League side also have seven. So the Yankees and Braves in the American and National League lead the way. Uh, like I said, the White Sox have six. Uh, there are a handful of organizations with five. There are three organizations that have zero prospects. Two of those will not surprise you, I would say, if you paid attention to the way systems have been built or torn down. Uh, that's the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Kansas City Royals are left without a top 100 prospect, which with the way that team was built is somewhat shocking. I mean, that was an organization that was contending for the most prospects in the top 100 just a few years ago. They don't have anybody there right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could certainly make the case for Matt Stram. Yeah. You know, the, a guy who showed he can pitch in a major league bullpen last year really, really well. Uh, should be a starting option for them at the very least if they decide to go that route this year. Uh, he's probably somebody right on the cusp. So they're not exactly devoid of talent in the same way I would say the D-backs are. Um, but, yeah, it, it is kind of shocking to see a team that, you know, we once thought of as just churning out talent, all homegrown, uh, not just be there. And part of that is is not great drafts, obviously. Uh, part of that is Raul Mondesi, who's still young, is no longer considered a prospect. Right. Um, you know, he, he's still prospect age for sure, but uh, has too many major league at bats to qualify. Um, he would probably be in that mix if we were still talking about him as a prospect. Uh, and I, I wouldn't quite sleep on the Angels in the way we used to. I think Jemai Jones is another guy right on that cusp. We can get into that, you know, as, as we get closer to prospect primers and that kind of thing. Um, but. You know, I don't think the Angels used to be or the Angels certainly used to be just a barren wasteland of prospects. And I don't think that's quite the same as it was this time last year. Strike two this week, Sam. Um, the password is Eckstein123. Um, <laughs> the the Cardinals Astros ruling has come down from Major League Baseball. And today we're recording three strikes on January 31st. Uh, baseball's commissioner, Rob Manfred, said, quote, the office of the commissioner made the decision in the spring of 2015 for sound legal reasons to defer its investigation of the incursions into the Astros systems, including Mr. Correa and witnesses, as a result of the ongoing criminal investigation being conducted by the FBI and the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Texas. That comes on the heels of baseball announcing its punishment for what came out of the hacking scandal between the Cardinals and Astros. The Cardinals will forfeit their top two picks in the 2017 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. And $2 million, is it $2 million is the is the financial penalty? Yes, they have to pay $2 million within 30 days. So those are the uh, punishments handed down to the Cardinals. This situation was so weird, and now you have a guy who is serving time in prison for this. Um, and it's... I guess the end of this, uh, but what a weird situation. Chris Correa, uh, 
has lashed out at the punishment from prison, um, saying that it's you know it's something that is uh, that is not fair. But it seems like I mean if if you're in the Cardinals organization right now, I would imagine you're very much ready to just put this behind you. Yeah, uh, I think everybody was. I I wasn't even thinking about it that much when when the email came in from the commissioner's office, you know, announcing this. Um, so I think hopefully this provides some closure for the game and, and we're not talking about a cheating scandal or a hacking scandal uh, in this way going forward. Uh, the reason we're talking about this here on the podcast, the reason we have a story up on the site about this is because by losing draft picks or gaining uh, draft picks in the, in the sense of the, the Astros um, this has an effect kind of on how we're, we're going to look at the 2017 major league draft. Uh, as Tyler mentioned, the Astros received the numbers, 56 and 75 picks. Uh, a lot of people kind of think the Cardinals got off a little easy in that way. Right. Because uh, those picks don't come in the, in the opening round. I mean, it's not like they're handing away a top 15 pick. Right. And the, and the reason why they aren't losing a top pick is because they already gave theirs away essentially when they signed Dexter Fowler, uh, who, you know, was offered a qualifying offer by the Cubs, turned it down to sign with the Cardinals. Uh, the Cardinals lose their first round pick as a result. So their top two picks were number 56 and 75. Now their top pick is at number 94. Uh, so if you're a Cardinals fan, don't get excited about the 2017 draft. Um, you know, or tune in long after the beginning because uh, it's going to be a while until you hear your team pick. But um, obviously this also has effects on signing pools. Uh, the Cardinals now have a signing pool of just $2 million, seventy-two or $2,072,300. That's easily the lowest in the game. Uh, the Indians are second lowest at $3.6 million. And the Astros, by obtaining these two picks, add a little over $1.8 million to their signing pool, uh, bring their total up to $8,608,300, which is the 11th highest among the 30 allotted pools. That doesn't sound that great. You know, that's just barely cracking the upper half. Um, but by adding $1.8 million, that means they can maybe be a little more aggressive uh, when they make their first pick, I think at number 15, uh, you know, maybe they can try to reach for a guy who has signability issues and they maybe they take somebody at number 56 and 75 that, you know, is a, a senior sign, somebody who's definitely going to sign for lower and they can put that extra money towards, you know, a higher pick at, at 15. Uh, it just becomes makes this Astro draft a lot more interesting or they could just, you know, continue with their basic strategy. But now they have. Uh, two new prospects that they can add to their system at you know 56 and 75. Looking back to last year, the the guys taken at those picks are now ranked number eight in the Twin system in Ben Rortvit and uh, number 28 in the Milwaukee system in Maurice, uh, Mario Feliciano. Uh, so you know there is some value that can be added there. Um, it is not nothing uh, to use a double negative, uh, but the fact that the Cardinals aren't giving away exactly a top pick. Uh, has a lot of people in the industry kind of thinking they got off a little easy. Former Cardinals staffer Chris Correa, by the way, is serving 46 months in jail. Uh, and he has said, as he did in court, that he only hacked the Astros to see what they had hacked from the Cardinals. So it turned into like this weird shadow game that uh, obviously was uh, uh, did not come out the way that Chris Correa would have liked it. So this story appears to be done, as we know right now. But the lesson is, eh, don't go hacking. Um, strike three this week, Sam, as we uh, get close to the final stages of prospect projections. National League Central is out. Um, some intriguing 
prospects in that division in every organization. Um, and it seems like so many of the names that we've been waiting to break through in the national league all come from that division. You know what I mean? Like, and they've yeah, done it with the Cubs. They've done it with the pirates, but the brewers now a very interesting system. There's a lot of names in this division still. Yeah. I, that was actually kind of a theme I was thinking of when I was going through this. It was a lot of names that we were kind of hoping we either break through in 2017 or, you know, we've always hoped, yeah, they're going to be great. They're going to be great. And then they kind of stumbled. And that's why this week's feature was on Tyler glass. Now, uh, I think he's kind of perfect for that. He was actually the feature of last year's prospect projections in the NL Central because we thought, you know, 2016 was going to be his year of ascension. Uh, the projections kind of bared that out. They actually think he's going to be better this year. Um, or, you know, the projections for th- him this year are rosier than they were last year. A lot of that has to do with the fact that he posted a 1.87 ERA uh, with 133 strikeouts and 110 two-thirds innings for AAA Indianapolis. Uh, the reason why he's not a graduated prospect yet, though, is he did have his stumbles with Pittsburgh. In 23 and a third innings, he gave up a 4.24 ERA and walked 13 batters. As has always been the case with Glass now, you know, he's got killer stuff. He's got a you know double-plus fastball, a really good curveball, a uh, changeup that's going to kind of keep you honest, uh, especially, you know, against minor league hitters. Uh, still kind of working the, on that against major league hitters, but he really struggles to find the strike zone uh, throughout his minor league career. He's averaged right about 4.4, 4.5 walks per nine innings, which is on the high side. Uh, the interesting thing from Steamer's point of view, they still think he is of value, even if he can't find the strike zone uh, with any regularity. They project him to have a 4.7 walk per nine, uh, which is above his career average, but over 200 innings, again, you know, using the steamer system like we do, this is over a full season, uh, over 200 innings, they would see him have a strikeout per nine of 10.0, which would be, I think, 11th best in baseball. And uh, he would be worth 3.1 war, which puts him third among Pirates starters uh, behind Jamison Tyone and Garrett Cole, who we already know are, are two locked-in members of that rotation. Uh, Glass now is going to compete for a rotation spot this spring. We'll kind of have to see how that works out, whether they think he still needs to iron out his control issues in Indianapolis, at Indianapolis in April, or if they're just going to throw him in the deep water, see how he swims uh, come opening day. But, you know, what's going to separate him from being just a good pitcher, uh, you know, number three, number four starter in the majors to being a potential ace is ironing out those uh, control issues, like I said, uh, he talked to our own Alex Kraft a couple of weeks ago for a Q&A that's on the site that's linked to in the projections piece, um, you know, saying he's kind of struggled with his length. Uh, you know, he's six foot eight. He's one of the tallest right handers you'll ever, ever see on a mound. He's going to get close to you. That's part of his effectiveness. But, uh, you know, when you're trying to work all these long levers, it can be kind of tr- tough on guys that tall. Uh, to get the ball to go where they want to go. So he's kind of working on that. He seems to think he found something, you know, late in the season last year. Part of the good thing about finding it late in the season is you don't really test it, so you feel great about it all offseason. We'll have to kind of see what happens when he's facing live hitting again, live major league hitting again. Uh, but he seems confident that he's kind of fixed it. Uh, we'll see how it all works out. But, yeah, that I definitely think he's going to be a major league starter for the majority of the 2017 season. It's just whether he's going to be a good one or a great one, and it's all going to come down to that control. So that piece is up on the site 
right now MILB.com. And that leaves us with just two more prospect projection stories for the 2017 season. I don't think I've screwed up calling it 2016 yet, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, I, I'm very I happy the same thing. That. It's You have to consciously remind yourself of like, okay, 2000, say seven, say seven, say seven, say seven, and then it comes out, and then you're good. Sam goes out, and he does the steamer projections, and he does the prospect columns and all that stuff, and I'm just happy that I haven't said 2016 when it's 2017 yet. <laughs> um, so that brings us to the close of this week's edition of Three Strikes and uh, spent so much time talking about the top 100 prospects. Let's talk to a top 100 prospect. The New York Yankees left-handed pitching prospect in baseball, 79th-ranked prospect overall, Justice Sheffield, joins this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast to talk his trade from the Indians, getting set for the 2017 season, a trip to Major League Camp, which is in the offing in just a couple of weeks and more. Justice Sheffield, next. The 79th ranked prospect in all of minor league baseball joins this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, New York Yankees minor league left-hander Justice Sheffield. Uh, welcome, man. How are you? How's the, the last few weeks of the offseason treating you? Uh, I mean, it's been good. Um, I'm actually down here in Tampa already. Um, you know, just getting ready for spring training and getting ready for the for the 2017 season. Well, and the most recent note on Justice's transactions page at MILB.com comes from today, January 31st, the day on which we record this interview, and it says, quote, New York Yankees invited non-roster left-handed pitcher Justice Sheffield to spring training. Knowing how close you are right now, knowing that you've got that news, knowing that the Yankees are this excited about you, um, I can't even imagine what the energy level is like in that system with all of the hype around just what talent is there. I mean, being kind of in the heart of it uh, and getting set to go how exciting is this moment for you guys and for you specifically um well for me specifically i mean i'm excited and um you know i'm ready to continue to work um just knowing that i got the invite um knowing that the yankees think of me that way um is, is it's a good feeling so um i'm definitely excited this is be my first uh, big league spring training so um yeah just just a lot of emotions but you know the work doesn't stop um just means um it's just now, you know, starting to starting to kick in, and um, you know, got to got to keep keep on moving. But as a as a whole, I know that all the guys are excited, um, just because this uh, new movement that's going on right now. Um, you know, the Yankees turn into uh, such a younger team and things like that. It's just uh, it's, it puts everything in perspective for us young guys that you know it, it is close, and um, you know this could possibly be our team in the next couple of years, and um, we're just all excited and. Um, you know, just trying to work hard and continue to have fun playing the game. And just to go back to that spring training invite, um, you know, I think it's something everybody kind of talks about. We always know it's coming in terms of big prospects get invited to spring training. But exactly what is that conversation like? And at what point did they talk to you or did you decide yourself to go down to Tampa this early? Um, yeah, uh, Scott Aldridge, um, our pitching coordinator, he actually gave me a phone call Um and just pretty much said, uh, congratulations, you're you're invited to big league camp. And, you know, at first it kind of took me back. I was like, man, are you, you serious? Like, that's pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, um, congrats, you deserved it. Um, so I was very excited to get that phone call. Um, you know, I called my parents right after and told them, and they are excited for me. And, um, but, yeah, um, just uh, – it, it was just a lot of emotions running through. And um, – I mean, it's it's the first first step to actually, um, you know, getting to the big leagues. So uh, just getting up there and getting to meet 
the guys already on the, the 25 man roster and um also the the non roster invites um you know I came over kind of late um in the season I think it was August when I got traded so I wasn't with the Yankees very long so um just getting to hang out with the with the guys and um you know getting a feel for uh how they do things up there and um I came down to Tampa for um this thing called captain's camp uh kind of a thing they've been doing uh for years now and we just uh just a group of guys get out here and uh, we work out throw get our bullpens in and uh put in our work but also um they have a lot of a lot of guys come in and talk to us like today we heard from Tino Martinez and um I think we're going to hear from Pettit and Jeter and things like that so it's a pretty cool little event going on and um you know I'm excited to be a part of it yeah and I'm glad you mentioned the trade in there we should set up exactly how you got into you know the Yankee system uh last year as you said you know you got traded almost right at the deadline uh I think the trade went down July 31st you join Class A Advanced Tampa August 3rd uh you come over along with Clint Frazier and a couple other guys for Andrew Miller uh what was it like to be involved in that trade knowing you were going to the Yankees and you know everything that kind of means you know between all the championships and all that kind of stuff but during a rebuilding phase and also, what was it like to kind of be in the Indian system before that, you know, knowing the team was kind of rebuilding or not rebuilding, but trying to contend uh, where they were going to be aggressive at the trade deadline? Uh, what was it like leading mm-hmm. up to it? And then what when you finally found out the deal was going down? Yeah, leading up to it. I mean, it was pretty wild just because, um, you know, my, my phone kept blowing up about rumors and things like that. So I kind of knew that I was in the involvement of, of the trades and everything like that. But um, kind of how it went down was, it was pretty weird because um, I was, you know, sort of expecting it, but then I wasn't expecting it. So I thought I was in the, going to be in the Lucroy um, deal. Um, ended up finding out that I wasn't going to be a part of that one. So I'm thinking about just going to bed and waking up tomorrow and I had to pitch. So I'm um, thinking I wasn't going to get traded. And then that's when I got a call from Carter in the morning saying that I was traded to the Yankees. And, you know, the emotions definitely uh, set in. Um, you know, I, I had to tell my teammates, uh, for two, two and a half years that I was with, um, goodbye. And, you know, that I'll be playing against them and things like that. So that, that was probably the worst part of getting traded, but knowing that I was going to the Yankees, such a historic organization and knowing that I was going to be able to put on the pinstripes and, um, play for that, that caliber of a, of a team and organization is, it was, it was exciting. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this family. Just as you kind of went through a sprint after that trade, uh, your last outing in the Indians organization is July 25th. You get a little bit over a week off um, and jump right in with Tampa on August 5th. Uh, but right at the end of the season, you get promoted to double A, uh, go out for an outing with Trenton. Fantastic in your first outing with Trenton. And then all of a sudden you're in the playoffs in double A uh, and get a chance to pitch a couple of times in the postseason for the Thunder. Being at a new level and the adjustment that had to come along with that uh, to finish your season with that experience. What does that give you now going into 2017, knowing that, you know, it's hasn't been a ton of exposure, but now you've already got, you know, close to 13 innings at the double A level. You've gotten to see some advanced hitters there. What does that do for you now going into this year? Uh, well, for me, I try not to make uh, too many big adjustments. Uh, just try to stick to my game and um, go out there and keep things simple. Um, I felt like that if I kept things simple on the mound and you know went about my business the way I usually do, then um, you know things would things would work itself out. And uh, you know that was good to get go up there and get my feet wet. And um, it was also awesome because I I pitched against my former former teammates from the Indians, which was it was pretty ironic how how things happened. But um, 
yeah, it was it was good to get my feet wet and um, see see uh, what what the difference was between Double A and High A, which um, you know I really don't think it was too big of a difference unless you make it um, hard on yourself. Um, that's I feel, feel like that's the biggest thing. And just to kind of go back to the trade for for a quick second, there's just always something I I find interesting in talking to guys who get moved like this because you don't really see this in any other profession. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, you're traded away from an organization. On the other hand, you're traded into another one. So you're kind of, you know, sent away from one but taken into another and one side really wanted you. How do you kind of view that when you, when you are moved in that kind of way? You know, when you kind of sit down and look at a trade like that, how do you kind of feel about it? Yeah, well, I knew that the the Indians were definitely uh, going to be World Tier contenders, as you've seen from uh, last year. So I knew that um, – there was going to be moves that had to be made and I understood uh, the business part of it and um, how the Indians wanted to win now. And um, so I just kind of had to look at it like that. So uh, a lot of people ask me, you know, are, are you mad at the Indians or, or how do you feel about them wanting to get rid of you or things like that? But, you know, the way I look at it is um, and the way I was told was they had to give up a lot to, to receive a lot. And as you can tell, Andrew Miller was a, was a huge piece and part for them um, in the World Series. Um, so I just look at it like that. And um, just going over to the Yankees, like I said, they, you know, turn, turning things into like kind of a newer, newer young crowd and or young players. Um, you know, that's exciting for us, um, us minor league players. It, it, uh, it really just shows that, you know, that the Yankees are changing their ways and uh, wanting to move to this young movement. So, uh, like I said, it just gives us hope and uh, gets the gets the young young players fired up. And as you're entering your first full season with the Yankees, you know only six starts in the organization so far. As you're in captain's camp right now, what is your kind of focus? Where where are you kind of looking to improve, or what are you working on? You know, as you potentially return to to the Double A level uh, to start 2017. Um, you know, this year I just really want to go out and uh, get through my innings. Uh, pitch as deep as in the game as I can and uh, help my team to win. Um, you know, some little things is just uh, work, still continue to work on my fastball command uh, because that's where my game starts is uh, work. I work off my fastball. So I feel like if I can get ahead and, um, you know, compa- command the ball uh, where I want it, you know, miss, 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 um, throw, throw quality balls and also quality strikes. Um, also, uh, just continue to work on my sh- the shape of my slider, and continue to develop on my changeup. Um, you know, I, I don't want to put any uh, pressure on myself this year. Just go out and have fun. Um, you know, continue to you know meet the guys and enjoy the game that we love to play. And um, you know, I feel like everything else will take care of itself. Justice finished the 2016 season as the sixth-ranked prospect in the Yankees organization. In the Los Angeles Dodgers organization, the seventh-ranked prospect at the end of 2016 was Jordan Sheffield, at Justice's brother. And Justice, for you, uh, you guys are so close in age. Uh, you were very close in draft status. You were a first-round pick in 2014. He's a, a competitive balance-round pick in 2016. Coming out of Vanderbilt for him, coming out of high school for you, you guys with such high ceilings, uh, with such similar paths now being first-round picks, how cool is that to have that as a, a relationship, not just a, a baseball connection, but a familial connection and what you guys have been through, you know, you're the, the younger brother, but you get a chance now to kind of be the guy who he can bounce stuff off of being in pro ball for the first time last season. What has that relationship been like? 
Uh, it's been awesome. Um, I know uh, me and my family, we, we were very uh, proud of, um, you know, where, where both me and my brother are today. So all the, all the, um, everything goes to, to my parents, you know, how they raised us and especially to my dad, he's been my coach since I was um, growing up. So, um, you know, they, they deserve all, all the credit. And, um, but just between me and Jordan, uh, like you said, we're only 11 months apart. So we were very close. Um, you know, we, we took a little bit different paths, but, um, now that we're kind of on the same, on the same path right now, it's been a lot easier just to bounce, bounce off, um, ideas from him. And, you know, this off season, we were able to work out together and get our throwing program in together. So it's been a lot easier. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for him. Um, and it's, it's just crazy how it worked out, uh, us two playing for, you know, probably two most popular teams in, in all of baseball. So I think that's uh, pretty awesome. Okay, we've gotten a chance to have a couple of guys on the show before who have brothers in pro ball, and one of the things that we always ask is how competitive it is outside of baseball. I mean, do you guys, especially over the off season, is there like a Madden battle that happens? Is there stuff around the holidays? <laughs> like, what is the what's the competitive level between you and your brother? It's it's very high, and uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> video games, anything that we do, golfing. I mean, it's, it's super competitive, and. Uh, that's just how we are, and I feel like that's that's why uh, we play the game, um, you know, like bulldogs on the mound. Uh, you know, we're not going to be the biggest guys out on the mound, as you know. I've read plenty of articles and heard it thousands and thousands of times about you know the height and he's undersized and things like that. But you know, that's just that's that's how we are. We we, we feed off each other's competitiveness, and um, I think that's that's why we're the pitchers we are today and uh, why we continue to be like that. But definitely in the off season, there's a lot of competitiveness between us two. I'm, I'm not going to take an L from him. <laughs> <laughs> Darn right. That's never should. <laughs> I, I was actually going to ask too, just because, you know, he went through the draft process last year. Uh, you know, he had done it before in 2013 before he went to Vanderbilt, but last year he goes 36th overall to the Dodgers. You went, mm-hmm. you know, before that 31st overall, did he allow himself to take any advice from you from being a high pick like that? Or was it just older brother syndrome? I'm not listening to my little brother, even when it comes to this stuff. Uh, Jordan, he's a stubborn, stubborn, stubborn guy. <laughs> and he's definitely not going to, it takes a lot for him to take some advice from me. Um, but no, when it comes to baseball, you know, we're, we're pretty good at, um, you know, if, if things need to be fixed or we're seeing something uh, with each other's wind up or anything like that, then we're pretty good at listening to each other. But, um, yeah, he's definitely got that older brother mentality in him. So it takes me a little bit, a little bit more of an effort to kind of get, get to his brain and, you know, tell him, tell him what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Sheffield entering the 2017 season as the 79th ranked prospect in all of baseball and, uh, and the, the upper echelon of maybe the most upper echelon system in baseball and the New York Yankees organization and going through captain camp right now and set for big league camp to get started here in just a couple of weeks. Justice, best of luck in 2017 and, uh, you know, wherever you land to get things started, whether it's Trenton or it's Grant Wilkesbury or wherever we'll be watching and best of luck. Thank you. I appreciate it, fellas. Thanks for having me.
Well, the closer and closer that we get to actual baseball season, the closer we get to the end of rebrand slash refresh slash new logo slash exciting new designs and all that kind of stuff season. And we bring on Benjamin Hill to discuss one of the latest and maybe the last for 2016, 2017. Hi, Ben. Hi. Yeah. Hi, Tyler. Hi, is Sam. Is this it? Hi, Ben. Uh, every time I say this is it, it isn't it. So uh, we're getting towards the end, though, and, and uh refresh rebrand season i call it riri season just like riri's uh rihanna's uh perfume is called riri so uh i didn't even know rihanna had a perfume it, it'll be I'm not cool. and there will be a team that'll be like hey we have a new look for tomorrow oh by the way tomorrow will look like this you never know well the newest uh for the minor league scene for the 2016-2017 off season is the Class A short season Lowell Spinners in Lowell, Massachusetts, the affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. And they've gone very Red Sox-themed, as you would expect. Most of the Red Sox affiliates, if they're not even named Red Sox, they've gone that way. Um, but a new look for Lowell, which incorporates an alligator. It does. Um, yeah, the Lowell Spinners have always been called the Lowell Spinners ever since their 1996 inception. And uh, always been a Boston affiliate and always had, you know, Boston-esque colors. But this logo they're unveiling tomorrow, I talked to Dave Heller, the owner of the team. Uh, he took over last year and, you know, without time to really, uh, you know, institute whatever changes he wanted to make. So I think with this rebrand and I'm sure with other aspects of the Spinner's experience, you'll see some changes as new ownership pretty much always brings some sort of change uh, one way or the other. But the new Lowell Spinner's look, um, the big difference – there's always been in Lowell with the spinners the uh, baseball bat spindle logo, which is a reference to the textile mills, uh, you know, producing yarn and thread. And uh, you know, Lowell was a big uh, part of the industrial revolution with the textile mills, and the spinner's name has always reflected that. The mascot is named Canaligator because Lowell has a extensive series of canals. I've been told more canals than any place in uh, than any place in the world except for Venice. There are more canals in Lowell, and wow. that was originally more than Amsterdam. Hey, or this is like what Bruges just or something? look. This is just what I've been told. Okay, <laughs> uh, I've been in Lowell. I've ridden on the canals, and those canals were part of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you know, I don't really know the ins and outs of uh, powering a mill in the 19th century, but the canals were uh, central to that. So all of this lead up and all this babbling I'm doing is to say the new logo really emphasizes that aspect of the spinners. Uh, in addition to the spindle baseball bat, which can still be seen in various forms, uh, Canaligator is seen emerging from the Lowell skyline, and Canaligator is swinging the spindle bat. Canaligator is, of course, named after the canals that are a big part of Lowell's history and are still part of the present. And the Lowell skyline can be seen in the back with some of those industrial textile mill buildings. Um, again, I have been to Lowell a couple times, and those mills are still very much part of the landscape. And as you often see in the, in cities... Uh, in the 21st century, in this very post-industrial world that most of us are living in in the United States, uh, those mills have been reclaimed. They are businesses. They are warehouses. They are loft-style apartment buildings. So they're still very much part of the Lowell landscape, uh, kind of similar to you know, various minor league locales. Like, uh, you know, you go see the Durham Bulls, and uh, that's in the tobacco district, and you see a lot of those uh, old tobacco uh, warehouses and factory cigarette factories uh, have been repurposed, and that's happened in Lowell. So... That's really the gist of the new logo. Check it out on MILB.com, my story, and, of course, check out the Lowell Spinners site. And um, and they also always been a Boston Red Sox affiliate but are now using specifically the Red Sox font 
uh, with spinners across the chest for the home jersey, Lowell across the chest in the road jersey, uh, an L hat in the Red Sox font that they'll be wearing, uh, I believe, on the road. And they still had that spindle baseball bat logo as an alternate cap. And for something like this, I, I know you said, you know, this is Dave Heller's team. He owns the team. He also owns Quad City River Bandits, Billings Mustangs, Wilmington Blue Rocks. So personally might not have an affiliation with the Red Sox outside of, you know, the, the player development contract. Um, but, you know, how much does that kind of come into play? Would the Red Sox have to approve, you know, this type of font? Would they try to push this type of font on an owner? What's that kind of relationship with, especially when it's, you know, this big of a callback? Uh, I don't, you know, being that the spinners aren't owned by the Red Sox, I don't know what the specifics of that kind of negotiation is. I would be surprised if the Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox specifically, tried to, you know, pressure the spinners to do that. I think it was, I think when it comes to logos, it's, you know, the minor league team is going to have their say in how they want to represent the product. And of course, we see that all over the minor league landscape with, um, you know, the irreverent, uh, very non-parent club specific identities we've had all across the minor league landscape. Uh, but I don't know what the specific uh, permission issues are uh, in terms of if that font is copyrighted specifically to the Red Sox, which I imagine it is in some way, shape or form. But I don't know exactly how that came about uh, in terms of using that specific font. But you can see it right off the bat when you look at the logo in the jerseys that uh, how would you describe it, Sam, that Boston Red Sox font? It is um, it's just iconic that's what you say when you don't know how to describe something (laughs) old-timey baseball font like you you know what the red sox logo looks like the red sox font looks like that's how i describe in the article they're using the red sox font you know what it looks like i'm not even gonna bother explaining (laughs) here's a picture here's a picture it's just swapped in with spinners um i'm sure that'll come in handy if they ever you know do a futures at fenway game back there again well and what's interesting too is the iconic there you go. Organizations in baseball. I mean, the the very old school and uh, revered organizations in baseball, their minor league affiliates really fall in line a lot behind the look of the parent club. The Red Sox, I mean, obviously the Pawtucket Red Sox and the Salem Red Sox, a triple A and class A advanced are going to look very much like the parent club, even though Pawtucket has the bear logos and has the weird paw prints going across the bills of the cap. Uh, but even the, the teams that aren't named Red Sox look very similar to that the portland sea dogs do the greenville drive use the same typeface font on uh on their jerseys and in their logos uh and lowell obviously this is the same the new york yankees scranton wilkesbury rail riders i mean they've got pinstripe uniforms the navy blue color scheme trenton thunder are similar looking obviously the tampa yankees are the class a advanced level so these older organizations kind of it's not surprising i guess that the affiliates try to fall in line and merchandise on the heels of the most successful merchandising organizations at the major league level. Right. And I think in most cases, proximity is the biggest reason for that is that the major league organizations that are the most established and therefore iconic are often on the East coast and the East coast and a little bit into the Midwest is really the only uh, locale in which you're a major league club that you can cluster your farm teams around you. So said farm teams will actually want to capitalize on the parent club look because their fans are fans of your minor league team and also the parent club. And uh, I think the closer you get to the uh, the major league city, Lowell is obviously pretty close to Boston, then the uh, more connections you're going to see between the minor league identity and the major league identity. One other note, by the way, uh, speaking of one of those teams, we had another baby logo unveiled. Scranton Wilkesbury unveiled a baby Bombers logo, and I really hope that it is a Scranton Wilkesbury New Orleans AAA championship game so we can see which baby reigns supreme of the new baby themed logos. Absolutely. Heard a lot of chatter on Twitter that the uh, 
that's an alternate logo in uh, Scranton Wilkes-Barre's case, obviously, but heard a lot of chatter that it definitely resembles a New Orleans baby cake. And uh, I think when I added my two cents, as I often do, I said the baby looked like he should have a cigar in his mouth more than a pacifier because he looks like a baby who came yeah, out of the womb. Like a baby with know. a five o'clock shadow. Right. He looks yeah. like he came out of the womb with a, you know, a, a highball glass in his hand and a cigar <laughs> and, uh, you know, probably already had some underworld connections even before he uh, took his first breath. By the way, Lowell Spinner's thing, uh, just real quick, Sam, then uh, we'll switch it to you. FS Design was behind the new look for the Lowell Spinner. So we had all Brandios up until the last two teams, Memphis and Lowell not going with Brandios for those of you nerdy enough to care. Sam. And there are a lot of people nerdy enough to care. Sam, I'm <laughs> sorry. Are. You've tried to talk for no, like No, no, no. I, like just, I wanted now. to point this out. I told the second I saw this, I pointed it out to Ben last time. It's another opportunity you know, with a, a mascot wearing a hat that you yourself cannot wear if you look at the logo. That's a great point. Yeah, so the, the main logo has Canaligator wearing a red cap with a white L, and there's no set. That is a great yeah. point. Yeah, you cannot wear that particular. You can't huh. swing that bat either if we're you know, being particularly <laughs> honest about it. But, Unless you're uh, going to make like a Halloween costume. That is just yeah. Canaligator's hat. That's all I wanted to point out. So there you go, Lowell Spinners. Uh, credit Sam Dykstra, but I think you should come out at some point with a uh, hyper-limited edition Canaligator's uh, cap, that uh, so that finally people can wear the ultra exclusive hat that only Canaligator can wear right now. That is a really good idea. Um, the logo conversation got deeper and deeper this week on the at Ben's Biz feed on Twitter and at bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And it was one of my favorite things to follow on Twitter this week because Lord knows we need them. Um, but defunct minor league baseball logos and teams. Now, this was inspired by MILBstore.com. MILBstore.com released three new hats, which they are nearly entirely sold out of already, uh, for the first edition of the Hometown Collection for 2017. Now, I'm going to be writing up something uh, later on in the month that covers some of the specifics of what exactly this entails and I don't want to get into it too much, but there will be more of these as the season goes along. So we'll leave it at that. But the Casper ghosts, the uh, Denver bears and the capital city bombers were the first three rolled out. I'm actually recording this podcast today, wearing my brand new Denver bears hat because they did an awesome job with all three of those. And Ben put out the question, if you had a team, a logo that you liked, that you would like to see merchandise made of send them in and got some awesome responses. This was really cool. It is funny sometimes, you know, especially in the off season, you know, I, I just want some engagement and uh, sometimes it's just like crickets no matter what I do, no matter what jokes I make, no matter what questions I ask. I ask people what sort of hats and shirts they'd wear of defunct minor league teams and logos and man, people are really, I mean, people are, our people are uh, <laughs> very passionate about our this. Type our type of people are very passionate about this topic. I got flooded with responses. Ended up turning it into a blog post where I took a lot of the tweets that were that I got, mostly the ones that included visuals. And uh, so, you know, you can talk about it. What merchandise would you like to see? But it also just functions as a larger exercise in nostalgia for uh, things that are no longer with us. Uh, these entities, RIP, Huntsville Stars, Tide, Tidewater Tides. Oklahoma City 89ers, uh, Modesto A's. We, we got it all. And and as a subset of this whole conversation, um, Alex Friedman, the broadcaster for the Oklahoma City Dodgers, he said, hey, you know, my favorite ever logo and team is the Vero Beach Dodgers. And he followed that up with, 
I have the 1995 poster of all the the minor league baseball hats, and I said, "Hey, can you uh, send a photo of that?" And uh, the next day, you know, he went home, took a photo, and the next day he did. He posted four photos of that poster. So it's the entirety of minor league baseball, circa. 1995 and you so can see great. how much the landscape has changed and that tweet got almost 200 likes tons of replies and retweets um it shows the depth of people's passion for uh for this topic and to stare at a photo of a poster of hats from 1995 so if you want to see that it's on my twitter feed but you can follow the great alex friedman at az friedman and uh, check it out there and uh, reminisce about what the minor league landscape looked in 1995. It really shows just once more how much one of us Alex Friedman is, because that was like that was so in the wheelhouse of the podcast and the the Twitter storm that came out of this. It was so cool to see that and to see the way everybody dove on top of it, too. Yeah. And, and such nerdy conversation. At one point, someone chimed in to Alex and I that the medicine hat Blue Jays was his favorite cap from the 1995 minor league baseball cap poster. And Alex responded, oh, yeah, at one point my friends and I had a draft, a fantasy draft of the 1995 <laughs> caps, and that was the number one pick. Wow. We're doing next week. That, we should <laughs> do that next Cancel week. next week's interviews. Well, That's and you know what week. I think is funny, too, is like – I noticed uh, I had those posters, too. I remember when you ordered a hat from, you know, one of those companies that mailed out catalogs and you could get hats from them. Every once in a while, they would, like, send you a poster and complimentary or you could order that along with things. And so, yeah, especially if you weren't in a minor league market, you could kind of romanticize what this was like, these small towns and the little ballparks and these guys playing to climb up the ladder and all that stuff. But the the visuals of those hats was so the the ability to hook you i think grabbed a lot of us when we were young and one of the things that i wanted to point out was ben tweeted out uh or a retweet of somebody who responded with the logo of the albany polecats and i don't know anything about the albany polecats but they uh played in albany georgia not albany new york for those of you wondering and brandy os responded that was the first minor league hat that jason owned jason klein was a co-founder of brandy os and my reaction to the hometown collection hats was the same exact thing. The Capital City Bombers was the first non-hometown, non-Denver uh, team that I owned a hat from. So, like, we all identify in these regards with the the looks of our childhood. And I think that's one thing that's really, really cool about this hometown collection that MILB and the Milb Store are trying to capitalize on right now. Yeah, and I hadn't realized it to this week, um, you know, what a deep well of nostalgia that tops uh, that taps into. And um that's probably why this has been and will be as it goes forward a pretty uh, successful opportunity for them uh, to sell this stuff because a lot of people miss these now defunct entities for sure. And w what would you choose just to put you kind of on the spot? There's not a lot of you know, your opinion here. You're sharing everybody else's what they they're nostalgic for. If you could bring back one hat for your purchase, what would it be, Ben? Well, it's funny because like. I got to know minor league cities through reading uh, the backs of Topps baseball cards. Because if you remember back then, if a player had had played less than four seasons in the major leagues, it would it include all his minor league stats. So I always associated the minor league cities with guys who had played there on the Topps cards and never really thought about it visually. But I was a Phillies fan, so the only logos I really paid attention to were those of Phillies affiliates. And I think the one I do, because it's kind of ugly in a way, not in a way it is, but at the time that the Phillies had their 70s, 80s um, era 
P. I don't know how you describe that, how it, uh, but you know, the 70s, 80s P. It's iconic. <laughs> but the Reading Phillies at that time, they had the exact same script of the Phillies P, but just awkwardly turned into an R. With, <laughs> and it just, even as a kid, I remember seeing that and being like, that just doesn't look right. But it was a Phillies team. It represented a place that was almost as close to where I lived as Philadelphia was. And um, so I always liked that. And I think I would wear that throwback 70s, 80s era uh, Reading Phillies cap for sure. One of the uh, we've had a discussion on the show and on Twitter before that certain minor league logos are just more than like great graphically or really aggressive or whatever. Some of them are just cute. Um, like the, the Salt Lake bees, the little bee guy swinging a bat is adorable. And so is, uh, the Beloit snappers, the little turtle guy who the bat is like two times his size is adorable. But somebody tweeted a photo into you of the Tacoma tugs logo. Yeah. And yeah. that is like the cutest logo in the history of baseball. It's just a little tugboat. He's got a smile on his face, which we don't see a lot of smiling logos anymore, but there's like, yeah, this was a cool topic. Yeah. There you go. I liked it. Tyler Mon, he can come across as sort of a. <laughs> cynical and checked out from the world but if you want to uh engage with tyler and uh get to his true essence is, talk about cute yeah. minor league baseball logos that is him. true i won't i won't disagree um ben let's move along you've got a story coming up um which is in regard to name history in some of the cities that saw changes this offseason. Uh, Binghamton comes to mind, the Florida Fire Frogs, formerly the Brevard County Manatees, but regions, areas, cities that have long minor league histories and now enter a new chapter and looking back on some of what has gone before. Yeah, just following up on this topic, um, and this is something you could write a book on. Um, so to narrow it down, I just decided to look at all the teams that rebranded this year uh, in the manner that got a lot of attention and a lot of, you know, outrage, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp and Binghamton Rumble Ponies of the world. So I'm just looking back at each of the teams that rebranded through their minor league history to highlight some of the more unorthodox, or at least unorthodox to us in the year 2017, teams that that city has had in the past, just with the general uh, thesis here that um, minor league baseball team names have, going back to the founding of minor league baseball, the founding of professional baseball, have often been kind of wacky and strange and um we're in a new era of that now and maybe it's at its wackiest because the the visuals are certainly more wackier than they would have been 60 70 80 years ago but just trying to highlight a few of those cities that have rebranded recently to say like hey let's look back at the history here you're uh, you know upset or, or amazed that you know the hartford yard goats will finally begin play at their new stadium in 2017 i mean they once had a team called the babies <laughs> so, you know, it's all relative. So just trying to point out that there's a lot of wackiness throughout minor league history. It's not going to be some gigantic, uh, massive research project, which it could be. But just want to touch on that subject because people enjoy it and it's kind of a fun one to write about. And it is kind of funny when people think, oh, these wild and crazy minor league baseball names. There were teams at the beginning of the 1900s that were named. Omaha had a team named the Omahogs. Uh, the Toledo Mud Hens, they've been around since the 1800s, so it's not really a new phenomenon. But be on the lookout for that from Ben. Check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. You can still get in touch um, the waning days if you were a designated eater and have not received a designated eater shirt. That post is up on the blog now as well. And be on the lookout for Ben's stuff on the site. And you can follow him on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Thanks, Ben. Hey, thank you. Yeah, this stuff just keeps on coming and, and, and coming soon. I cleaned my desk and I wrote a whole post about all the things I found on my desk. So. <laughs> Get excited, everybody. Looking forward to it. Thanks, dude. 
Justice Sheffield, by the way, is on Twitter. Forgot to note that at the end of his interview, but he is at Top Chef S H E F F forty two, and you can find him there. You can find some pictures from uh, his visit to New York City a couple of weeks ago, in which a bunch of the Yankees' top prospects uh, got to take a tour of New York and meet and greet some fans and all that kind of stuff. And Benjamin Hill, of course, is at Ben's Biz, and you can find him there. And Sam Dykstra is there as well at Sam Dykstra M I L B. And uh, I guess that's it. Did you did you say yours? No. People don't, yeah, well, people don't like, need it. No, vote <laughs> yourself a little bit. Jesus. He's, uh, he's very annoying on Twitter is what the people say about <laughs> me. No, I'm at Tyler Mon, uh, and I apologize for not sticking to sports lately. Um, but this is our last episode. Uh, I lied last week. Well, I guess it was only a half lie because I said it was our last episode of a non-baseball playing month. But technically, that was true because even though we're recording this on the last day of January, you're not going to hear it until we're in February and we're two weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting. So there you go. Yeah. Now that, we have I'm, it. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, now now the time has come, I think. So excited. Now, like that big red circle on on the calendar that we all did on the Christmas calendars we got. So close. Holiday calendars we got. Uh, yeah, now we can actually see it. So, so. close. So close. Uh, so until next week, when uh, we'll undoubtedly start off by saying, hey, we're only one week away. Uh, enjoy your <laughs> Groundhog Day edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Get in touch with us, uh, podcast at MILB.com, or you can find us on social media as well. And until next week... Uh, thanks for tuning into this one. We'll talk to you then. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.